The opinions expressed by the guests and the contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. Hello, thank you all for joining us today. My name is Sharon Brown, and you're listening to a brand new season of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Welcome back. Thank you for listening. As we begin, like I said, our brand new season of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast, I'm really excited about the new season. But before I go on, I just want to take a moment to remember my former co-host, Cornell Woodson. He is no longer with Cornell University. He has moved on to bigger and more exciting things for himself, and we wish him well. And with that said, I would like to take this opportunity to introduce our brand new co-host, Anthony Sis. Anthony, please tell us about you. Who are you? What do you do? What do you bring to the podcast? Tell us all the wonderful things that are going to happen because now you're here. Thank you, Sharon. I'm really excited to be here at Cornell and I'm honored to be co-hosting this podcast with you. So as Sharon mentioned, my name is Anthony Sis. I am the new diversity and inclusion training specialist here at Cornell, originally from Chicago, the best city in the world, Chicago, Illinois. Shy town. Shy town, indeed. So beginning with this episode, a new episode of the Inclusive Excellence podcast will be posted every two weeks. So you heard that correctly. Every two weeks. Weeks. Every two weeks. Okay, Cornell and the yeah. community, you guys can put us on the clock. Yes. Every two weeks, we're going to be dropping something. We're always going to be dropping something, but that also requires some input from you all. That means double the amount of conversations and dialogues related to diversity and inclusion. There are also going to be some new programs and initiatives rolled out within the next few months related to diversity and inclusion here at Cornell, which we will also be sharing here through the podcast. That's so exciting. I'm really ready to sink my teeth into some really good conversations, some good guests. Some of the episodes will be just you and me, and then some episodes will have guests. So before we begin, uh, you know, we thought it'd be kind of helpful to go over the new structure, particularly starting with this new season. Yeah, let's do that. So yeah, so we'll still keep the tradition of the question of the day before we start each and every episode. The first episode of each month will be featuring a segment called What's Going On? So it'll be a conversation with me and Sharon and some invited guests in some episodes to really just talk about what are some of the latest trends around diversity and inclusion that are happening and just have a conversation about it. We'll talk about other things that are culturally relevant to things that are happening diversity and inclusion related in the workplace. Okay. And in the second episode, we'll invite members of the Cornell community to engage in a dialogue around a specific topic, Mm -hmm. which is also related to diversity and inclusion. So, Anthony, tell us, how do you get people to be a part of our podcast episode? I I just want the community to know uh, how they can be a part of this wonderful conversation. Yeah, so that's a great question. So, you know, we recognize that there are so many amazing individuals and people here at Cornell doing awesome work around diversity and inclusion. And we want to be able to hear from you. If you or if you want to recommend anyone that we should reach out to to be interviewed, definitely send us an email at ie-academy at cornell.edu. And we'd love to hear from you and hear from people who you think would be really fitting for us to interview for this podcast. All diversity topics and inclusion topics are fair game because at Cornell, we are all about inclusion and belonging and diversity. So hopefully our guests will reflect that. So what you said earlier about having the format stay somewhat the same, I think it's time for our question of the day. I'm ready. Bring it. Okay, question of the day. 
Do you mask or downplay any aspect of your physical, cultural, spiritual self while you're at work? Let me know if you need me to repeat that question. Repeat it one more time, please. <laughs> Do you mask or downplay any aspect of your physical, cultural, or spiritual self while at work? A little bit. So my gender identity is genderqueer, but my expression is very masculine, and I use they, them, their pronouns. And so I think... You use they, them, their pronouns. They, them, their pronouns. Singular. Yes. So I think part of that in terms of what I downplay in that is the kind of genderqueer identity and how I express it, right? So my appearance, my expression, because it's so masculine presenting that oftentimes people assume that I may be part of the LGBTQ community, but they may not necessarily think that I'm anything beyond that. Like they may not assume I'm genderqueer or use they, them, their pronouns. And so I think that's something I definitely downplay. I haven't really thought about why, but I think a large part of it is just for you know, my own kind of safety, Mm -hmm. also just in terms of professionalism and what that is, how that is loosely defined, right? I try to kind of conform to the norms in many ways. And not that I would dress otherwise, but it is something that I think about a lot is my masculine kind of expression versus my genderqueer internal gender identity. Oh, that's that's a really good question. And you did tip on something. You mentioned something that we're going to be talking about later on in terms of what is considered professional. But before we go there, I'm going to answer the question as well. Something that I downplay while I'm at work, I do a lot of code switching. And uh, when I'm in certain environments, I behave, I speak, and present myself in certain ways, mostly through speech than anything else, because my behavior is pretty consistent and it's pretty off the wall, but that's another story. (laughs) Um, So I do a lot of code switching with my speech. I'm Caribbean. I'm actually from Jamaica. So I have a heavier Jamaican accent when I'm speaking with people who are from Jamaica or I'm comfortable with. And um, and then there are times when I have this more uh, street lingo, a lot of eubonics come out. In that, And I find that to be very comfortable and soothing for me to have opportunities to let that out. And then there are times where I don't do that. I sound the way I do now. And that's okay. And, I, and it's not that I'm hiding any part of me. It's one of those situations where I feel like I have to fit in where I can and just blend in to some degree. And I'm still myself. I'm not denying any part of myself, but I definitely downplay the other um, ways of communicating with the world. So... Thank you for answering that question. I appreciate it. No, and you bring up a good point, too. I think about just having grown up in Chicago, too, and how location and where you're born plays a huge role in kind of what you hide and how you show up in the workplace. And so when I'm back home in Chicago with my friends, I speak the lingo of the city of like where I grew up. You know, I don't have to explain people what juke means or what all these other different terms mean, you know. And so that's another piece I would probably add to my answer. All right. So um, you touched on saying that how you present yourself speaks to professionalism. Why don't you go ahead and share with our listeners what we're going to talk about today, some new and exciting things in the area of diversity and inclusion. Yeah, so something that has come up in kind of some recent news and headlines around diversity and inclusion, hair discrimination. Mm. And how, you know, employers sometimes discriminate people based off of their hair texture or look or appearance. And so this kind of came up, particularly with California being one of the states that's also passed a particular legislation. But there's also something here similar in New York City, not necessarily the state of New York, but New York City. New York City. Yeah. So the New York City Human Rights Commission also released a statement back in February of this year, releasing new legal enforcement guidance, clarifying that, quote, grooming or appearance policies that ban 
limit or otherwise restrict natural hairstyles or hairstyles associated with black people specifically generally violate New York City's human rights law anti-discrimination policies. Okay. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. And then with California, Sharon, if you want to talk a little bit about what California mentioned or talked about. So what California did is their introduction to the hair discrimination in the workplace was the development of the Crown Act. And the Crown stands for Create a Respectful and Open Workplace for Natural Hair. And what it does, it pretty much fosters the rules and laws and bills that are coming through and letting organizations know, letting companies know that it's not okay to discriminate someone based on their hair because hair really is an expression of identity and culture and heritage, and it is a sense of pride for so many individuals. And so um, kudos to California. That'll be really interesting. Like I said, we have two different states, New York State and California, Mm -hmm. well, particularly New York City, enforcing these particular stances around hair. And so when I was in Portland, Portugal. Well, let me just rephrase. Let me just start back. So for me, one of the things that I always like to do when I'm in really high intense stress situations is do something that I would have never normally thought to do before. So in years past, I've done a mohawk, like a legitimate mohawk. You're making me <laughs> nervous. I was like, what did you do? No, yeah. Okay. So I've, I've done a legitimate mohawk. I've done other things. And one of the things that I've been wanting to do for many years was dye my hair blonde, like oh. bleach it, color it, do the whole like nine yards, not just, you know, paint it blonde and then my roots grow back within a week, right? I wanted to do like the whole thing. That's drastic. Yeah. So one of the things when I was in Portugal, towards the end of my time there, I was talking to a coworker about this and she had said that one of her friends has like a salon in his basement. And so she said, I can figure out how much it costs and if you're interested, you know, I can figure things out. And I said, okay, perfect. So it turns out that for the bleach, the color and the haircut, it was only 50 euros which I don't know exactly how much that translates in dollars now. I'm sure that's not a lot of money. It is way cheaper than it would normally cost here in the States. Yeah, so, no overhead because it's, it's the person's basement. <laughs> exactly. I know, like, you know, people charge, like, two, $300, like, colorists mm-hmm. charge that amount. And so, oh, okay. yeah, so it's pretty expensive. And so I, I don't just, think I've ever colored my hair. Really? I mean, my sister, when she was in beauty school okay. back in the late 70s, early 80s, uh-huh. she colored my hair because she needed to practice. practice. But beyond <laughs> that, I have never colored my hair. So I have no idea what coloring hair costs. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's it can be pretty expensive. And wow. so and so I knew that because, like I said, I had been wanting to do it for many, many years prior to going to Portugal. And so when I was there, I decided to color it, decided to do the whole thing. And it came out a lot better than I thought. I'm not going to lie. It came okay. out really, really great, like really bright blonde. It wasn't like a, what is it, that platinum, platinum blonde? White. Yeah, I know. It was, it was like, yeah, it was like a true blonde I can't even color. picture you with blonde hair, but I'm sure it yes. was great. Did it you was, do your eyebrows? No, your I didn't do, no, I didn't do all that. No, I just did my hair. But what was really interesting in doing that was, uh, it was, like I said, it was near to the time I was about to leave Portugal to come back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And they had a going away party for me at a restaurant. So Went to the going away party. I was a little bit nervous, though, because it was with a lot of senior level folks at the university that I was teaching at at the time. So I was teaching at a public university, English and American culture, and I was there for a year. And so was a little nervous because they hadn't seen my blonde hair. But I said, "Okay, whatever. It's the end of my time. What are they going to say? Well, my supervisor comes up to me and she says, oh, you know, she made some comment about my hair being nice and how it's really blonde. And she's like, well, good thing you didn't do this earlier during your time teaching there. Yeah. So it was like a one-off comment, and I kind of took that as like, okay, well, whatever. You know, it's the end of my time. But it made me think a little bit about what would have happened if I had blonde hair coming into that particular experience, right? 
How would my life be different if I started out blonde? Right. Or just like just the microaggressions and the perceptions. And so I think, you know, for me, it was such an interesting social experiment is what I like to tell people now, because even when I would walk in the streets of Portugal, people, I remember specifically one incident where somebody just stared at me and just laughed. Oh, with my blonde hair. Oh, my God. Is that a compliment? I'm confused. You know, but obviously if somebody's just straight up laughing at you that you don't know in the street, you take it as a sign of like, oh, they're trying to humiliate you or something, you know, or you're different. Yeah, you're different. And And so you're unusual. You're the other. Right. And so it just made me think a little bit about just the perceptions that we have of people based off of hair mm-hmm. in general. That was like the first time I think I was truly exposed to it because I had pretty straight hair. I comb into the side, you know, very much kind of like this look, this passing look. This conversation in particular made me think a little bit about that experience. Thanks for sharing that because it has me thinking about some of the decisions I've made with my hair. And um, as a black woman and black culture and Caribbean woman, hair is such a huge part of who we are, how we get to know ourselves as young girls coming up. And I'm sure some level of that happens for young boys becoming men as well. I do know that I also have a lot of girls in my family. So hair was almost always something that was an issue, whether it is an event is coming up and you have to get your hair done a certain way. Like I said, my oldest sister was in beauty school. She's been a beautician now for probably over 40 years. So hair has always been a big part of our day-to-day lives as well as our overall culture. And I do remember, let's see, I've had my hair in dreadlocks now for about 10 years, but I do know that it took me about 10 years to decide to actually do it. And I remember wanting them when I Very, very early in my career, I was working at another organization. I wasn't even living in Ithaca, but I knew that I didn't feel like it was welcomed in the workplace for me as a black woman to show up with dreadlocks. Wow. And I'm not going to say what this organization was that I worked for, but it was very corporate. And it's a global corporation. You know, it wasn't like something local. And I truly did not feel like it would be appropriate. Now, at the time, I didn't have the language to know whether or not I was experiencing microaggressions around my hair, but all I know for sure is that I didn't feel like it was okay. I didn't feel like it was welcome. So at that time, well up until I think 2009 or 10 is when I started my dreadlocks, all the way up until then, I just went with perms and um, acceptable braids and weaves and things like that to go against against what my hair naturally did. You know, I always say that allowing my hair to be natural is doing what God intended for it to do, which it's so much so much more liberating than fighting against it and putting chemicals in and color and extensions and making it look like what it's not. So um, I I have found that for me, not showing up as my authentic self was all those years when I was wearing a perm and putting rollers in and applying heat. And uh, as a man, I don't know if your experience has allowed you to get a glimpse into what a black woman has to do to her hair on a regular basis, but um, it is serious business. It really is. It is. It is. But I, I feel so much more liberated now that I have dreadlocks. I've had dreadlocks so long, I actually cut them. I never thought I would see that day, but about two weeks ago, I wow. got a haircut. And um, and it, it just feels freeing. It feels and, and I ask myself, 
where did all that time go that I used to spend doing my hair? <laughs> now I just wake up, shake it, and go, and it's the best thing ever. It's the best, one of the best decisions I've ever made. Sharon, so let me ask you this, though. So you said it took about, you know, 10 years for you to grow into your dreadlocks, and then what was that moment, that that kind of aha moment of like, oh, you know, it's okay for me to grow out my dreadlocks. And what, what ex- was there a particular moment, experience? Was it internal? Was it external? Did it have to do with your workplace? Like, what changed? I have a feeling, I think it was both internal and external. I think that um, as I have grown up and, and owned myself as part of it also, part of it is just coming into my own and accepting this is who I am and these are the things that I want and this is what I deserve. Uh, I deserve to be able to wear my hair whatever, whichever way I choose. And also witnessing other women of color become natural, what they call natural hair. They're, they're just allowing it to be what it is. And seeing all the beauty in that and all the pride that, that these black women and men have in, in just expressing themselves through their hair. It's a part of their culture and it's an extension of who they are. And um, I just got brave because even before I did my dreadlocks, my hair was natural. Natural really means without any chemical to alter the state of the hair. So, um, of course, you know, you wash it, you clean it, you keep it moisturized, condition, just basic care. But I don't have any chemicals in it to straighten it or to change the texture of it. So that's when it's considered natural hair. And so I was growing my hair naturally for years, but I still kept it under wigs just so I can continue to fit a mold. And so after years of braiding it and wearing wigs and things like that, I just decided to take the plunge and go ahead and get my dreadlocks done or installed. And um, I think it was internal as well as external. So for me, I thought, well, I'm at a certain age now. I can do it. I feel comfortable in my skin. not code shifting as much. Yeah. And um, and also uh, another thing also was uh, knowing that I was living in a place where I would be able to find resources to maintain the hairstyle, the hair in its natural state. And that's another big deal is finding resources. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, it's I wish I could speak a little bit more on that because I feel like that's such a privilege that I have mm-hmm. as, you know, somebody with straight hair who has short hair. You know, I just use hairspray and you know, it literally takes me all of five minutes, comb it oh, to the side. Must be nice. And that is it. Yeah, I don't really think too much about <laughs> it. And so, yeah, so what 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 process was that like? What are some of the things you typically look for when you think about, you know, location and resources for your hair and things like that? What I do is um, I, I, I scope out, I guess, a community to see how many, how many brown people are walking around on the streets. How many people do I see coming and going? How many shops do I see that are catering specifically to a demographic that I can identify with? And so when I see that, I say, okay, there's a place where I know I can get X, Y, Z. I can get the, you know, the particular whether it's shea butter from my skin or coconut oil or whatever it is, um, just knowing that it's there. Now, granted, it may be more expensive than if I were in Brooklyn. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is more expensive than in Brooklyn. Um, But it's okay. At least it's here. You know, it's a a step in the right direction. And I, I also feel like I belong in that community, in the community that displays opportunities for me to find resources, whether it's a barber or a beautician that knows how to do my hair. I feel like I, I belong there. I'm a part of that. They thought about me when they when they developed these places and established these businesses that I was on their mind. So that that felt inclusive. That's great. Yeah. And 
Yeah, it just reminds me too about the importance of barbers. I didn't even think about barbers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I go to a barbershop <laughs> and it's and every time I move to a new location. So when I was in Chicago, it took me years to find a barber. Not only a barber that did my hair the way I liked it, but also that was that I felt comfortable with. Right. And so I'm not gonna lie, though the barber I went to in Chicago, I just went to him because he was a good barber, but not necessarily the most inclusive. Oh. You know, he would say you know, it's so barbershops tend to have this very hyper masculine culture is what I like to say, you know, in terms of preaching about sports and uh, talking about women and oh, stuff okay. like that. And so it's it creates this, especially for me as somebody who's not part of the, you know, hetero world, you know, identifies LGBTQ. And so mm-hmm. uh, so those conversations for me always put me in this weird spot where I'm like, OK. If the barber's good, <laughs> right, I'm right. going to sacrifice my comfort just to get a good haircut. Cause for me, Yeah, because the haircut's more important than the kind of environment that I'm going to be in for, what, 30, 45 minutes at most, right? Uh, but when I was in Miami, so previous to coming to Cornell, I was in Miami, and I went to this barber shop, and I was two, two things really stood out to me. So one, it had a bar. So it, a bar <laughs> a in bar. the barbershop. Yeah, so it's part of kind of you, you get one drink as part of it. So it's called the spot. <laughs> well, tell me the barber himself or herself is not drinking and then no. maybe we got some. No, 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 they're not drinking. It's just okay. the people who are paying to get the service. So awesome. it's part of, you know, the it's it's about the experience, right? Mm-hmm, the experience mm-hmm. the, of the barbershop. You know, it has a little bit of the traditional element, but also this newer aspect with like a bar. You could also get coffee if you want. And what was really great about it was that they had Cuban coffee, which I love. Okay. So, <laughs> so I like the concept, but I don't want it here at the college town. Oh, no, no, no. This is definitely, this is definitely not happening on my lunch break uh, or anything like no, that. No, I don't mean you. I mean like having a barbershop with alcohol in a college town with oh. all these underage people. <laughs> That's what I'm concerned about. But you're good. You're a responsible adult. I'm not worried about you. Yes, yes. But So that was the first thing that stood up. But the second one was that they also had female barbers. Yeah. And so the first time I went, I remember I went – and I didn't have an appointment with anybody. I went with a female barber. Mm-hmm. And it was so interesting because I actually, I'm not going to lie, I kind of had some assumptions and stereotypes that I was like. Do tell. Yeah. So, you know, my barber, she was a woman. She was, you know, really, really pretty, you know, really attractive. And I and she had long blonde hair. Funny mm-hmm. enough, blonde mm-hmm. hair. I was already <laughs> assuming like, oh, I don't know if she's going to be that good. But, mm-hmm. you know, in my head I said, okay, I'm going to give it a try, you know, at least. But the fact that I was already thinking about those things literally seconds before I even got my haircut from her right. was kind of revealing, right, about just the culture of, you know, being in a barber or a shop and things like that and how it's mostly men, not really open to women. But nonetheless, I got my haircut from her, and she did an amazing job. Like, oh, good. literally the best barber I've had ever in my entire life. So much so that I still miss her. No offense to my barber here in, in <laughs> Ithaca, but I do miss her a lot, um, you know, and, and we became really close. And, yeah, but barbers, in terms of finding a place that can – cut your hair the way that you want it. it, it can be really challenging. And, you know, it's so funny you mentioned that you went to a white woman barber who had long blonde hair to do your hair. I said, I mentioned that I just got my hair cut about two or three weeks ago. The woman who cut my hair is a white woman with long blonde hair. Downtown really? Ithaca, yes, there is, there is a shop here. And um, I had been going there for a few years. The woman who was there before was a black woman from Africa, so... I made judgments that she knew how to do dreadlocks, and thank goodness I was right. She did. But she has left the business, and the only other person left is a white woman. And I was really apprehensive about it. But, you know, I said to myself, I have been coming to this shop for many years, getting my own hair done. I always went to the black woman to do my hair, and this white woman is um, 
she owns the business now. I, I, I'm assuming she owns it. And I thought, give it a shot. And me and all my judgment <laughs> was in her chair. And she did an amazing job. Not only did she, you know, style the hair, she actually cut it, gave me exactly what I wanted. And I felt completely at ease and comfortable. But I can't say that I didn't walk in there with the judgment. So I love that I had an opportunity to get past my own prejudices and allow someone to do what she is trained to do in my hair. So that was really good to know. And and yeah, lesson learned. Although we talk about diversity and inclusion all the time, we are still not above, you know, prejudices and judgments when it comes to things like that. So, Absolutely. Good. And we all have them. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah we, we confess to them. <laughs> so I guess to to kind of wrap up this conversation, Sharon, too, what are what do you think are kind of some of the things that we at Cornell should be thinking about when it comes to kind of assumptions around hair? and particularly here at Cornell, that folks can kind of take away from this conversation and understanding that it's part of a larger national conversation. Absolutely. Um, I know for sure that hair is is such a sense of pride. And um, as a black woman, before I started to wear dreadlocks, I would change my hair constantly. Every two weeks or so, you know, I would decide if I want to braid it or take the braids out or wear my hair in one braid or 700 braids, whatever. And um, I remember uh, a woman I knew, this was not a Cornell employee, this was a woman I knew. And I'd known her for many years, and every time I changed my hair, she would act like I was, I was magical. And I, I had to pull her aside one day, and gently, of course, with love and kindness, I had to say, please stop being so surprised. This is my culture. This is what we do. And it will continue to change. I think that, you know, it's if you like something, say you like it. If you don't like it, you can say nothing. But I just felt uncomfortable every time you're mesmerized, like I'm, I'm in the corner doing sorcery on my hair. But in reality, I'm just living my life. And so every time you see me, you don't need to say, oh, my goodness, what did you do with your hair? Because it didn't feel authentic after a while. And so um, what that's what I would want people who are not of a culture where they change their hair all the time to just allow others to be who they are and allow them to express themselves without creating an excitement around something that somebody is doing every day. That's what I would want people to know and do. Great. Yeah. And I would just add that I think about with hair color a lot. I've definitely seen people here on campus with different hair colors. They may be students. They may be staff. They may be faculty. We don't necessarily know. But um, just really challenging those thoughts that you have as soon as you see somebody, you know, and kind of what we shared in our examples around, you know, what were some of those initial thoughts? But then going back and being like, oh, wait. That may not have anything to do with the individual, right? Exactly. So just being mindful of those things that we have when we see other people with different hairstyles or with different hair colors and things like that. And for men, if it's the hair is long, we have an assumption, right, about Mm -hmm. men with long hair and things like that or, you know, with a long beard that looks a little scruffy and things like that. So, so of course, you know, depending on where you work, I think some of it has some some other implications around, like, safety in terms of health and things like that. But really just challenging our own biases before we release as you said, vocally or through our body language to other people, what we're actually, what we're thinking. Right. Which may or may not have an alternative effect on the people that we're having those assumptions about. Also, um, as an organization or as a company, um, Cornell University, of course, they 
we at Cornell, we want everyone to feel like they can bring their whole selves to work. You can express yourself in an appropriate way for the organization. So um, we just want to kudos to Cornell for allowing that, for allowing us to be our complete and fabulous selves in our workplaces. And also um, just reminding other organizations who may be listening that maybe have a little pushback about how much they will allow their employees to be. Once you uh, work for a company that allows you to express yourself that way, what you're showing to the world basically is that they value diversity not in their customers, but also diversity in the people that they have as employees. And that, that goes such a long way because everybody wants to see someone who looks like them when they're deciding who to work for. And so um, I feel very comfortable and I feel like I belong at Cornell, dreadlocks and all. I belong at Cornell. That sense of belongingness is really real for me. Yeah, I definitely feel it too as a new employee. I've, you know, the few times that I've, the few months that I've been here, I've definitely felt that appreciation and just really being able to be authentically myself. And so I just continue, I hope and continue to learn from everyone else here around what that belonging looks like for them. Because I know that's not that may not be the experience of everybody here at Cornell, but right. we also want to be able to to be able to hear and have these difficult conversations around fostering inclusion in the workplace, and hope we can move forward from there. Wonderful! Thank you so much. Thank you, and thank you, community, for listening to today's podcast. And um, if you like this episode, you can leave a comment. You can share this episode out. Send it as a link to anybody you're interested in. And every two weeks, we're going to be sharing a podcast with you. So we're definitely going to be doing that. So follow us on SoundCloud to get those updates. Yay, SoundCloud. Or if you are new to SoundCloud, you can also just simply go to our website, diversity.cornell.edu as well, and Mm -hmm. listen to it there as well. And for comments and such, you can email ie-academy at cornell.edu. That's the email address. That's ie-academy at cornell.edu. And once again, I'm Sharon Brown. I'm Anthony Sis. And we thank you so much for listening to the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Have a wonderful day. Anthony and I would like to thank our sound engineer, Bert Odom-Reed from Cornell Broadcast Studios. Bert has been here holding us down, making us sound like true professionals as we do our podcasting. So thank you to you, Bert. Thank you, Bert. We appreciate it.